Hello and welcome to the Eastman's Predator Pros podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nimnick, and we are back. And coyote season for me is underway. Um, pretty excited. Just got back from a, a last stand filming trip out to Nevada. Something with a good friend of mine, Lane Bangeter. Um, So, yeah, we're tuned up on that. I'm going to talk a little bit of that here once we get going, kind of how that hunt went. But uh, hopefully, you know, if you are a seasonal coyote hunter like me, I'm guessing you probably have been out by now. Uh, you know, I know a lot of guys wait till, you know, you start getting some cold mornings. Um, some guys wait till the fur, you know, is where it needs to be to sell it. But I suppose in this market, that's not that big of a deal when coyotes are only going to be worth, you know, five or 10, 15 bucks. So guys, you know, aren't too hesitant to, to start shooting them a little early. So hopefully your season's going. Um, cause mine is, and I'm pumped. I'm excited. So this episode we're, uh, Figured it'd be fun to do just a quick little uh, tune-up, uh, kind of go through the coyote calling process from start to finish. Not in great, great detail and a lot of stuff, obviously, you know, want to keep this podcast to an hour or so, but uh, maybe just some familiarization stuff to kind of run through, maybe stuff you already do, maybe stuff you don't do, uh, but just to maybe get the wheels turning so that, uh, you know, you're ready to go start whacking coyotes. But before we get going, I need to thank the sponsors of this episode, uh, which are Juniper Mountain Coffee and Sig Sour Optics. Now, Juniper Mountain Coffee is new to this podcast. They're new to the Eastman's brand as far as all the podcasts and stuff that Eastman's does. Uh, so to kick that off, uh, Juniper is doing a promotion right now. Uh, if you go to their website, which is junipermountaincoffee.com, you can uh, you know look at everything they have to offer. Um, and then you can use promo code Eastman's, all one word, all capitals, and that'll give you 25% off your order. So if you're into coffee, if you want to go check out what they have to offer, um, you know, do it, man. 25% is a, is a heck of a discount. Um, but, you know, starting to get more and more information about it. Like I've always said, I'm not a coffee drinker, so I don't know a lot about the product itself. But I do know a little bit about the company, you know, and their family-owned business. You know, they have Western hunting heritage, you know, is behind what they do. Um, and then obviously they support what we do here at Eastman's Predator Pros. So I'm all about it. So if you're a coffee drinker, you want to help them out, see what they're all about and get 25% off. Use that Eastman code Eastman's, uh, when you check out and that's good till the end of October. So, uh, don't delay, check that out now with SIG optics. Um, you know, just actually got a new pair of their binos, uh, the Kilo 10 K the XR 10 by 42s is what I have you know, 10 K on the range finder is probably plenty far, um, for shooting coyotes. I, you know, I was shooting mountainsides and stuff at like two and 3000 yards, pretty easy with them when I was out in Nevada, just messing around. I mean, easily you can shoot animals at what, you know, way over a thousand with them. I was shooting, had some coyotes on one particular stand. I was, I was bouncing ranges off them in the sagebrush at 700 yards. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for something, the, the glass in them is really good. Um, you know, as far as I haven't looked through every pair of range finding binoculars out there on the market. Um, I had Bushnells before these, um, that last SIG I had, what I think was a three K four K is one of their older models. Um, but this new one, the glass might be even better. And then obviously the range finder is good. I haven't had a chance to get the BDX all set up because, um, you know, I have to sync the the BDX app in my phone to the 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 binoculars, and then once that's synced into the binos, then the Bluetooth signal between the binos and my scope um, will will sync up every time I turn my scope on. And I haven't had a chance to do that. I need to go out to the range. Like I said, I always like to tweak that a little bit and uh, make sure you know those four, five, six hundred yard shots are are dead on when I use that BDX system. But yeah, if you're in the market for a range finding binocular, you know man, I don't know if you can go wrong with these. I think price wise, they're, they're right there, you know, very comparable to what, uh, you know, as good as anything you're going to get for that price range. So yeah, check them out, man. Like I said, these are the 10 gate, 10 Ks. They even came in uh, a Brown, like a coyote Brown, which is pretty cool. So you can go over there, which six hour.com. You can go to their optics line. You can see scopes, you can see red dots, you can see binoculars, but, uh, but yeah, check them out. If you're in the, uh, the need for uh, some new optics. Well, let's jump into this thing. Um, before I kind of get going, you know, walking through, you know, essentially really what I do uh, when I give a seminar, that's really what I want to go over on this podcast, just kind of a start to finish, the, the process all in itself. 
nothing's going to be in real great detail just because I'm going to try to fit that all in here in about an hour podcast, but, um, you know, start to finish kind of everything that we're thinking about just as like I, like I said earlier, just a refresher. Uh, I know everybody that's a seasonal coyote hunter is just getting going. So hopefully that'll help. But before I want to give a quick recap, um, I just got back from my first trip of the season. Uh, I was out with a good buddy of mine, Lane Bangeter. Uh, Lane and I won the world championships back in 2014. Um, I've been up hunting wolves with them before, spent some time hunting coyotes and out here in Nebraska. Uh, but Lane is just a, an incredible dude. Crazy story. You know, they, he started off as a government trapper and, and now, you know, kind of got into politics and just, uh, just an awesome guy, man. But one thing, regardless of what he does in, in his walks of life, man, he loves killing coyotes. So it was awesome, you know, hunting with him, uh, you know, to me, part of the coyote, hunt is is the windshield time right the time in between stands and just catching up with people maybe that you haven't seen for a while uh, my wife always asked me she's like man you guys just you haven't seen each other in a couple of years and you just get in a truck and i'm like or even with guys i've never met and i'm like yeah man, it's, that's how guys do it man we don't uh we could find all kinds of stuff to talk about whether it's work life coyote hunting other hunting sports you know it doesn't matter it seems like we always have stuff to hunt but you know we went out to nevada uh, Lane had some some ranches that uh, that he's hunted for a while, so so we were out there. You know, the first couple of days it was super warm. You know, high seventies, even eighty that first day. Really, the first time I've ever hunted coyotes in t-shirts. <laughs> it was it was warm. Uh, you know, we had we kind of had a mixed bag over three days. We had some coyotes that just really had no care in the world. It's almost like the the call wasn't even playing. You know, like I know they could hear it, but it, they acted like they couldn't. Um, just super unmotivated. The coyotes that did come to the call, at least those first two days, uh, were, were almost walking, you know, and it was taking a lot longer, you know, the normal sound sequences and the time on stands that I normally run, I was having to extend that out a little bit just because that's the way the coyotes were, were coming to the call, you know? So footage wise, we didn't get anything real great the first two days. And you'll see all this coming up here in November, uh, on episodes of the last stand. Um, but you know, we, a good coyote hunter always has plan B and plan C and, and you're able to, you know, try different things and, and try different tactics. And that what we did. And we ended up moving locations for day three and we finally got into some coyotes. The coyotes respond a little bit better. Uh, we killed a pretty unbelievable triple. Uh, you know, this time of year, you hope to get into one of those wads of coyote pups with maybe the, one of the adult coyotes. And that's exactly what happened. We got in with the, the adult mom and I think there was three pups with her. We ended up killing the mom first the two pups second we ended up not getting the fourth one the brush and the grass was just a little too high but as a matter of fact it was tall enough we were we were head shooting all these coyotes because that's all, all we could see you know in the grass but uh you know it was like three four minutes of chaos uh which hopefully that comes through when you watch that episode but that was that's what we were looking for early season so uh you know i'm sure hopefully you know i'm sure you're starting to get out if you're a seasonal coyote hunter um you know you're gonna see october's not always fire you know sometimes the food sources and things are still you know pretty you know ample and the coyotes just aren't real motivated yet sometimes i think the pups are even too young they really don't even know what to do i it's a debate you know whether coyotes are born with that natural instinct just to respond to a prey distress sound you know something squealing or whatever or is it because you know as their pups their mom catches a rabbit and they hear that rabbit squealing before she kills it you know, I would assume that the mom probably already has the rabbit killed before she brings it back to the den, so they don't ever get to hear that. For me, I would personally think that it's just something that's ingrained into the into their DNA that that they you know respond to. But who knows? We'll probably never know anything like that. But uh, but no, it was fun. I hope uh, when those episodes come out, um, I'm always excited to see it because the camera sits with Lane, the camera sits with me, so we both say things throughout the hunt that each of us doesn't actually hear all the time. So it's fun for me to watch those and see what kind of funny stuff the other guy says and, and uh, go from there. But let's jump into this. Uh, I'm going to switch over here to, uh, uh, you know, my slide presentation, the one I normally just keep, keep me on track here a little bit. Um, but really I want to go through, we're going to take, you know, like I said, maybe about 45 minutes here. I would kind of want to run through, you know, kind of the general coyote calling process. All right. We're going to start by talking about coyote characteristics. Then we're going to move into finding places to call coyotes, picking individual stands, getting into those stands, the setup themselves, and then talk about, you know, now we're, now we're set up, what kind of sound sequences, sound selections, 
Um, you know, probably not going to dive deep into time on stand, volume of call, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we could spend a whole podcast on its own doing that, but uh, that should at least give us maybe a, a quick refresher for everybody before we move into the into the coyote season. Now, you know, coyote looking a little bit understanding coyotes is extremely important. You know, coyotes have an unbelievable sense of hearing, a sense of smell. You know, their eyesight is great. You know, let's just take a peek at the hearing aspect. You know, coyotes, um, you know, they can hear four times better than you and I. Um, So, you know, don't underestimate that the coyotes can't hear the call when you're playing it. Um, You know, volume of the call is super important. I always like to say the one thing that is, you know, true in coyote hunting is if they can't hear it, they're not going to come. So me personally, I always err on the side of too much volume as opposed to not enough volume. Um, you know, and there's some theories and things we can talk about as far as spooking coyotes with volume of call that, that are spread around out there. But I really don't know. Uh, I personally don't believe in that, but, um, but yeah, obviously their hearing is, is excellent, you know, four times as good as you and I. So, you know, if you're curious to know how good your eco, let's say you're running a, a lucky duck revolt, you know, or a soup, uh, a roughneck, maybe even a lower end one, like a riot or a rebel, you know, next time you're out, you know, go test out your equipment. A lot of people, they, they fire up their call and like, oh man, I hear this echo or it sounds goofy. Well, you're sitting right behind it, 30, 40, 50 yards, right? Things sound different than what it does four, five, 600 yards out in front of the call. So, you know, experiment sometime, you know, after you make a stand, you know, use the remote capabilities of your lucky duck, walk out there four or 500 yards back into the timber, up over the hill, even have your buddy stay there and run the call and just, Get an idea of what it sounds like further out away. You know, you'd be surprised what sounds really, really loud, you know, 40 yards behind the call. You get out there 100 yards, it doesn't sound near as loud, you know. But if you get into a big open country, you get in some timber, and let's say you fire up that call, maybe there's a 20-mile-an-hour wind, and you can walk out there, I, I don't know, two, 300 yards, and then you personally can't hear the call anymore because it's too windy or there's timber or there's a hill. Well, guess what? Coyote's going to be able to hear that call four times farther than that. So if you're 200 yards away, the coyote should be able to hear that call out to 800 yards. Um, so that just gives you a decent idea of what your, your e-call is capable of. So the next time you make a setup, I, I talk about getting in the coyote's bubble, right? Like every coyote has this imaginary bubble that fluctuates size wise from minute to minute, day to day, hour to hour, you know, month to month. Uh, it's ever changing and you have to get with inside that bubble. Sometimes the bubble is very small, meaning you have to get in really close to the coyotes before they respond to the call. Other times, you know, the, the bubble is massive and coyotes come running from a long, long ways. So um, that just helps you understand like when you make a setup, if you think, Oh, you know, there's a draw or a drainage or a crick bottom, that's the cover on this stand where the coyotes probably going to be. That tells you, okay, I need to get within 400 yards, 600 yards, 800 yards, whatever that may be. So at least I know my sound is traveling to that area. Uh, you know, eyesight coyotes are really good. You know, the thing about coyotes are they, they want to see what it is that's, that makes that sound. We'll talk about that in a minute here, but you know, it's a huge part of the game. And then of course their sense of smell is second to none. Um, you know, I use this example when I do seminars, I say, this is how good a coyote's nose is. You can take a canine drug dog, which, in my opinion, their nose is probably not as good as a coyote just because a coyote's using it on a survival basis, but they're probably very, very similar. Um, but you can take like a pound of cocaine, wrap it up in cellophane, duct tape it, do whatever you want to do, throw it in a 55-gallon barrel of diesel fuel, and that drug dog will still be able to sniff that out of there. You know, that just tells you how good a, a canine nose is. And then, like I said, a coyote's nose is just as good. So you're never going to fool the nose of a coyote. Um, you know, early on back in my coyote hunting, hunting career, you know, I, I, we finally realized that these damn coyotes were smelling us, you know? So instead of just molding our setups to where we could kill them before they got downwind, we thought, oh, we just need to do something about our scent. So, um, yeah, I tried lots of different things, spraying fox urine on me, which was a huge mistake. Um, (laughs) don't recommend that one. Um, you know, I tried scent killers, you know, all it did is make us complacent to the wind. Coyotes were still smelling you. They, they were still running off. So, uh, once I realized that was not the route to go and just realized, Hey, we got to mold these setups to, to be able to kill these coyotes before they, they get our wind, then everything was much better. But what you have to realize is that once when coyotes are responding to the call, all three of those senses are on high alert. If they hear you, 
the gig's probably up. If they see you, the gig's up. If they smell you, the gig's up. So, um, you know, you have to take all that into consideration, you know, from the time you're pulling into the stand in your vehicle, you know, getting out of the truck, walking into the stand, setting up on stand, you know, sitting there as the coyotes approaching your stand, you have to keep all, all of that in mind, understand that they're using all three of those. And in order to get that coyote close enough, you have to fool all three and, uh, and then make the shot. So, uh, one last thing here on, on coyote characteristics, I want to talk briefly about the coyote life cycle. Um, you know, coyotes breed once a year, uh, you know, in most parts of the world, it's going to be, you know, right around that February 1st time frame. I would assume that maybe the farther south you get, that may be pushed back a little bit, just like the deer rut almost, you know, our deer rut here in the Midwest, um, you know, 1st of November, roughly middle of November, you know, I talked to some guys clear down in the southeastern part of the United States and their deer rut is is even a month or two later. So I, I'm assuming there could be the potential that, you know, coyote breeding cycle is pushed back even a little bit in those those places, too. But really, we're getting one crop of coyotes a year, um, you know, and that's happening, you know, first part of April. So, you know, when all these coyote pups are being born, you get this huge explosion in the coyote population. You know, it might be upwards of 60, 70, 80 percent jump. In coyotes at that point, you know, obviously at that point, though, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent of those coyotes are uncallable just because they're little coyote pups, you know, with their eyes still closed in the den. Um, and that's what concerns us is right. Callable coyotes. So as that summer progresses, you know, I know there are a lot of guys that kill coyotes in the summer. You know, they're still transient coyotes. Not, not every coyote is going to pair up and breed. Right. Especially a lot of those one year old coyotes. A lot of those coyotes will not breed. A lot of the females won't come into heat. Um, you know, that really makes up that, that population of transient coyotes that we talk about that really don't have a, a set place. They just kind of meander around, kind of filling in the gaps when they do find some spot, you know, those are a lot of the coyotes that uh, you're killing. So, you know, if you're out hunting in the summer and killing coyotes, you know, you potentially could be killing, you know, pairs of coyotes that have a den site with pups, you know, a lot of the decoy dog guys do that. Uh, but if you're just out calling, you know, maybe thermal hunting, whatever, and killing random coyotes, probably you're killing these transient coyotes that probably didn't breed. Um, but as the summer progresses, um, we get towards the end of summer, early fall. Now all these coyote pups are starting to to scatter out a little bit, disperse. Um, I got a couple messages here from a guys over the last month that said, hey, I'm starting to see dead coyotes on the highway. To me, that's a great indicator of, okay, these coyote pups now are getting pushed out of the, out of the, the den area. Um, the litters are starting to scatter out. Now these coyotes are kind of on their own, right? Now they're starting to have to feed themselves, find their own, own their own areas to, to live in. And that's now all of a sudden we get a huge spike in the amount of callable coyotes. And that's really why early fall can be so good is because, you know, that's going to be the highest densities of callable coyotes that we're going to have um, throughout the entire, you know, 12 months of the year. So um, and then, you know, as the, as the fall months progress, you know, you get deer hunters, you get guys driving around, all the, the crops start coming out. Coyotes are more, you know, left out in the open a little bit. People are shooting them. Uh, coyote hunters are hunting them. Um, real, so really from October all the way to, you know, the following April, it's just a steady decline in the overall coyote numbers. Now, obviously coyotes do move uh, and fill in, you know, but that's all the, dependent upon the carrying capacity of the, you know, the areas next to where you're hunting or where coyotes are dying off. You know, if you're in there killing coyotes on your property, there's really only going to be new coyotes move in if there's an excess amount of coyotes in the surrounding areas, right? If, if the carrying capacity of your surrounding ranches or farms or wherever are, are under carrying capacity, well, there's probably not going to be any new coyotes that, that are able to move in onto your place, you know, and there's various things out there. You know, we talk, about dead pits and external food sources that will draw in coyotes, you know, in areas. So basically your carrying capacity is increased in those areas and that helps bring in new coyotes more frequently. Um, but you have to realize, you know, that, um, you know, it's probably unrealistic to think that you can go out and kill coyotes on stuff all the time year round, you know, and that there's always going to be a, a massive amount of coyotes in those areas. You know, you may have a particular spot, like I said, that has an external food source, Maybe some, maybe it's in a travel corridor or something unique that the coyotes fill in there more frequently. But um, keep that in mind that that you, it's unrealistic to think that you can just kill, 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 kill in all season long. You know, for twelve months straight, 
you know, especially if you're killing them in the summer, because obviously if you're killing coyotes in the summer, the only way there's going to be coyotes in the fall there is if some of those new pups scatter into that area. And then once you're killing coyotes in the fall, you know, when you go back to those places midwinter, you know, you're hoping that some of these transient coyotes move in um, and things like that. So, and then as far as that life cycle goes, like I said, once we, once we get back into that February timeframe, now, obviously, we're dealing with lower densities of coyotes because now, you know, you might have 40, 50 percent of the coyote population has been killed off by this by this point of the season. Um, and then the hunting pressure's up, right? These coyotes have been pressured now. They've been hunted. They've been chased around. They've been shot at, um, you know, all those things that probably contribute to what we call educated coyotes, pressured coyotes. Um, so some of those coyotes, you know, are a little tougher to hunt. So. Um, but there's theories on that as well. I'm going to get into that on a, on a future podcast, really, about educated coyotes. Um, you know, are, is that really what we th think of it as an educated coyote? Are they really able to learn that quickly? You know, just to give you a little taste of what we'll talk about on that podcast when I do, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to find the right person to, to talk about it. Rick might be the one to do, but, um, you know, you're tr just picture training a dog, right? Will a dog learn how to sit from the very first time you tell it to sit and give it a treat? Probably not, right? It's it's continuous repetition to train a dog to do one thing. So in some instances, I find it hard to believe that if a coyote comes running in one time to the call and you shoot and miss it and it runs off, that that coyote now is the smartest coyote that ever lived from one incident, you know? So just something to think about, you know, it's this kind of stuff that my brain thinks about all the time, like instead of just going with the flow, what everybody's always talked about for a hundred years, you know, let's, let's maybe take a little bit di different look at this and see if that's really the thing, but I don't want to get too much into that. Just give you a little taste of something we're going to talk about in a future podcast, but that's really the coyote life cycle. Um, and it's super important to understand what type of year time of year that you're hunting coyotes, some of the challenges with that time of year, um, and how you can use that in your setups in your call sequences, um, and in the properties that you hunt. The last thing on coyote characteristics I, I always like to talk about is the process a coyote uses when responding to the call. Now, this may seem very, very simple and very obvious, but I I don't think everybody really thinks about this. You know, first and foremost, what is it that's bringing the coyote to us? They're using their ears, right? It's the sound of the call. So wherever that coyote is out there, they hear the call. We've We've played a sound that has triggered that coyote in some way. Now they're, now they're responding. They're coming to the call. Um, now the great thing about coyotes are at some point, like I talked about just a minute ago, they are going to want to use their eyes. Coyotes want to see what it is that's making that noise. You know, bobcats, you know, you, if you and I were stalking something, we really wouldn't have to see. We'd maybe peek out every now and then we'd use the cover. We'd sneak in on it. Coyotes aren't like that. You know, coyotes want to see they, they want to use openness. They want to get there usually as fast as they can. So if you've ever been sitting on a stand and a coyote, you know, shows up in an opening or comes up on a little rise out there at two, 300 yards, they're using, they're using their eyes. They're like, okay, I want to see, I want to see what I can see at that point. But knowing that you can use that to your advantage when it comes to setups. You know, if you've watched the last stand, if you've listened to this podcast series, you've heard me talk about setting up in like a bowl situation where I purposely limit my visibility on stand because it does the same for coyotes. If I limit my visibility, the coyotes visibility is limited. Therefore that coyote has to come to a certain point in the stand to see. And at that point, I'm ready to kill that coyote when they get to that point, instead of just setting up on the big, most wide open spot. You know, if I give the, if I can see 700 yards, I'm giving the coyote the chance to sit out there at 700 yards and just look at me up there you know, obviously he probably doesn't see exactly me sitting there or you sitting there, or whoever it is sitting there, but it gives them the chance just to sit there and stare up there at the side of the hill and not really see anything that they want to see. So keep that in mind. But then once, once the coyotes, you know, within a couple hundred yards, you know, they're going to want to use their nose as well. I mean, I, I picture a coyote, like there's this dying rabbit in the grass, right? Maybe it doesn't see anything. Maybe it doesn't know what's going on. What's the fastest way for that coyote to find it? Just like any good bird dog, right? It's to circle downwind a little bit. Boom, smell that. And then that that scent will take the coyote right to it. So I think sometimes, you know, we assume that when a coyote starts circling, that they're automatically an educated, smart coyote. Sometimes I don't think that's always the case. Um, but 
keep that in mind at some point you know the coyote's either going to come right to the sound or he's going to circle downwind usually and i say that nothing's ever 100 percent in coyote hunting every now and then i'll see coyotes that will circle upwind for some reason you know still don't understand that but you know it does happen but we have to anticipate that the coyote's coming straight to the call or you know circling a little bit to the downwind side and and that that's all on your setups right we got to make sure that we can see the call have good visibility out in front of the call and then have visibility of that downwind uh, part of the stand as well so where to start right this this is a big part of it you know land access um where do you even begin to go hunt coyotes you know onyx hunt is has been a huge game changer you know before onyx hunt i use plat maps uh, blm maps um i would i would use a gps in, in coordination with that so i kind of figure out where i was at um but you know land access is really out of all the pieces of the puzzle that we're trying to put together land access probably is one of the most important you know if you're hunting where there's not a lot of coyotes it's going to be tough to call in coyotes you know uh, if you're hunting a place that's loaded with the coyotes, hey, your hunting's probably going to be pretty good. If you're hunting a place that, um, you know, everybody else seems to hunt, or if you're over hunting one of your places, you know, the coyote hunting is going to be more of a challenge. So um, it really comes down to never giving up on land access. You can never have enough land access. Um, you know, when I look at, you know, I call it location rotation, essentially, Um you know, I've talked about this on stands or on podcasts before, like, how do you know if you have enough land to hunt coyotes on? You know, it's, it's a pretty simple formula, you know, figure out how many stands a month you're going to make, you know, let's say you're a seasonal coyote hunter like me, you're going to hunt October, November, December, January, February. So I'm going to hunt five months. How many stands a month are you going to make? Maybe you're the type of guy that runs out for four or five stands in the morning, maybe four or five stands at, in late afternoon. Maybe you're a night hunter and you go out from, you know, once the kids are in bed and you go out from eight to midnight and you make, you know, five or six stands. Maybe you make, maybe you hunt all day like I do. Whatever that's going to be, you know, rip out a piece of paper, you know, write down how many stands a month you're going to plan on making. And let's just say that's 25. You, you're going to make 25 stands a month. Well, then double that. So that makes 50 stands. That's really the minimum amount of stands you need access to, to probably successfully hunt coyotes for the entire season. Okay. So, you know, if you're sitting with, and, and you, we have to remember too, not every stand is going to be good for a West wind. Not every stand is going to be good for a North wind, you know, so a certain percent of those stands are good for certain wind directions uh, just because of your access into those stands. Certain stands may be better early in the season versus late. Some may be better later versus early. Um, those are all things that you'll find out once you start hunting those areas. But but that gives you an idea of just the bare minimum number of stands. And I'm betting if you're listening, most guys will probably be towards the, the low end of that. They won't have enough. So the more, the better. Never stop finding new places to hunt. Never stop asking permission. It is an ongoing process. You know, I've been hunting coyotes now for, you know, 25, 30 years. And, and this year I I've lined up three or four or five new ranches that I'm going to hunt that I've never hunted before, uh, because it's a never ending process. You know, we lose some ranches, they sell, maybe the, maybe the, the owners kids are now big enough and they're starting to hunt coyotes. So the dynamic of those properties change, um, you know, whether it's public land, public, private, it doesn't matter, you know, figure out how many stands you're going to make a month, then start building your database. And the great thing about Onyx hunt is, I can store all those stands, you know, I can drop pins on all these stands. I can even go into the notes section if you want to go even further in detail. And I can, I can write, Hey, this is a, a stand good for this wind, this wind, this wind, you know, this is a stand good for this wind. And you start marking those because as you start to build up, let's just say you get two, 300 stands that you make or more. It's tough to remember all those. Right. And so, you know, having that all stored on your phone and you can pull up on X and see every, all two, 300 of those stands, that makes it super easy to be like, oh man, I totally forgot about this stand. And then the last thing I'll do is I'll kind of put a designation on each of my stands, like an A stand, a B stand, or a C stand. Now an A stand is, you know, primo, you know, might be a hundred percenter stand. You've heard us talk about that, meaning every time you go there, you're calling in a coyote, um, you know, maybe a B stand, which is eh, maybe it's good or maybe early, 
Uh, it can be good later. It just depends, you know, but we're not maybe a 50% or something like that. And then you have what I call my C stands. And that's usually, you know, I can usually kill some coyotes early, but then after that, I have a hard, hard time ever killing a coyote in there. More than likely, that's just a, an issue of probably other people hunting it, you know, could be a, a public land spot, could be a spot where, you know, the farmer rancher basically lets anybody in there to hunt, whatever it is. Um, but then I'll label those. So, you know, it's very easy. You know, I see this a lot. Seasonal coyote hunters like myself, you know, we're all amped up. We're excited to go kill coyotes, uh, you know, the first of October. And then all of a sudden, where do we end up running, right? We, we end up going to our A spots just because we want to go in. Of course, we go out there, we kill a bunch of coyotes. And then, you know, as we progress, you know, and, and hopefully with our stands, you know, we're not only, we're only having to hit those spots every couple months. When in total, I'm more really trying to hit my spots maybe three times a season, once early, once middle of the winter, and then once late. Um, so by the time I go back there, I, I don't have any luck. When, in fact, you should sacrifice maybe a few kills early and go try to, you know, hammer on those C, C spots, you know, specifically before anybody else hits them. Um, and then hit some of those B spots and then save those A spots. More than likely, those A spots are A spots because you're probably maybe one of the only only people that hunt coyotes there. Maybe it's family owned land, maybe uh, leased land, maybe it's maybe it's public, but maybe it's just somewhere where nobody else seems to to find. They drive right past it or something like that. Um, but those those A spots are going to be good later in the winter. So go kill some coyotes early on in your C and B spots. Then come in on those A spots middle of the winter, and now you can kill a lot more coyotes and you can keep the success going all season long instead of killing, you know, 80% of your coyotes in October, November, and then killing 20% of the rest of your coyotes over the next, you know, three and a half, four months. <clears throat> you know, I could spend a whole podcast on that, but, but that should give you a decent idea of, of what it takes um, when it comes to land access and how much land you really need. Now, narrowing it down, we, we've have the general area where we want to hunt coyotes. Now, how do we narrow it down? Where, how am I picking stands? You know, one of the simplest things that that I talk about is when I'm going into a stand, what makes a good stand, right? If I if I draw a center, if I draw a circle, okay, and the center of the circle is where I'm going to sit on that stand, and I draw a radius out on that circle of 800 yards, okay, and then I cut that circle in half, okay, I'm only worried about 180 degrees of that circle, um, where I sit. That's going to be a good stand if I have not walked through that 180 degrees. The wind is not blowing into that 180 degrees of land out in front of me. And I haven't drove through that 180 degrees of land. Now, what, what determines now if how good that stand is, how much cover is packed into that 800-yard, 180-degree circle. The more cover, the more cuts the more river bottom, the more creek bottoms, the more high grass, the more sagebrush, the more rocky draws, whatever it is, whatever cover you want to call it, wherever you live in the country, the more of that you can chalk in that 800 degree radius, 180 degree half circle, the better a stand it's going to be. You know, if you're looking out across a 600 yard bare dirt field for half of that 180, well, there's probably no coyotes laying down out in the middle of that dirt. So they're not going to be there. And only one little spot over here has a little bit of grass and a little bit of a tree row. Well, there's only, that's a very minimal spot for a coyote to be on that 180, right? So as opposed to the stand where you have a creek bottom over here, you have tall grass over here, you have canyons over here and tree rows and all this stuff where there could be multiple, multiple places where coyotes could be. That's really what I'm looking for. That's what makes a great stand. Now, getting into that stand, you know, vehicle routes, you may live in an area where there's dirt roads every mile. That makes it pretty easy. You just park off the dirt road. You walk back in there, you know, two, three, four hundred, five hundred yards, whatever it takes to get to where, you know, you want to set up where that center of your circle needs to be. Um, that makes it nice. If you're hunting big chunks of land, maybe big public land out west, you know, you may get on two tracks um, and drive those. You know, if you're on big cattle ranches like I hunt here in West, a lot of times I'm just off-roading, uh, you know, getting to where I want to go. Um, but, you know, getting into that stand is important. You know, your vehicle route, like I talked about, you don't want to drive, be driving through, you know, the area that that you're wanting to call that 180 degrees of area where you're hoping the coyote's going to be. Now, once you get to that point, obviously, you need to hide the vehicle. That's super important. Um, you know, you may be 
you know, some, some places I hunt, it's super easy to hide a vehicle, especially the farther, the Midwest and East I go, that's usually not an issue at all. Out West hiding a vehicle can be an issue sometimes just because of the openness. Um, so sometimes you do have to walk a little bit further to get, you know, the vehicle hit and get into where you want to be. You know, like I talked about visibility is a two way street. You know, the tough part sometimes is, is getting into the stand without the coyote seeing the truck driving in there because usually if a coyote's out there within a half mile and they see the truck driving in they're going to turn around and run off and that gig's going to be up and then once you park the truck and walk into the stand the more open it is the, the more of a chance the coyote has of seeing you walking into the stand and if that happens the coyote's going to run off gigs up on that um you know so keep all that in mind so sometimes out west that's one of the biggest challenges i talked about this on the last stand is you know getting into these stands we bump coyotes just because it is tough you know you can do some things use the use the terrain Use little cuts, tree rows, whatever it takes, walking in to stand. But, uh, you know, the key is get into your stand without the coyotes knowing that you're that you're there. Now, once you get to your setup, you know, we're talking about this 180 degrees, right, of, of unmolested area that, that we're hoping the coyotes are in. You know, how do we cover that, um, whether it's you hunting by yourself, maybe you got a buddy or two with you, um, you know, I usually just divide it up, right? You know, who's ever running the call, obviously they're going to kill, you know, that percentage that's that, you know, 60% of that half a pie is going to be the guy running the call. Okay. Then, you know, maybe if it's just you and one, a guy, maybe I'll, you know, that guy has 90% of that. And I call it the downwind guy, your partner, he's going to have the other 90%. Um, you can split that up, you know, getting set up and using that e-call, you know, is a huge advantage getting that sound out away from you is a huge advantage. So yeah, your setup is important. Finding something to blend into, you know, if you're, like I said, if you're in the Midwest or the East, probably never going to be an issue. You're always going to have tons of stuff to sit by, whether it's tree rows, brush, hay bales, fences, old buildings, corrals. I mean, you name it, you'll have all kinds of stuff to help break up your outline and hide in while you're making stands, you know, out West, sometimes it gets tricky. There's a lot of times I'm sitting on a bare side of the of a hill with two inch tall grass, and there's not a yucca, there's not a rock, there's not anything other than just grass, um, you know. And that's that's where you know that e call with a remote comes in handy. You know, the more cover you have to sit by, the more camouflage, the more blended you are in. The closer I usually keep the call because, the, you know, a I don't need to get it away from me because we are blended in great. And then usually a lot of that stuff is, is more shotgun conducive types of trains and environments to, so I want the call, you know, 20 to 30 yards from where I'm sitting just so I can shotgun coyotes when they run the call. Now, some of that big wide open country, you know, that's, that's really where I max out, you know, and, and use these e-calls with these remotes and get, you know, it's not uncommon for me to walk a call, you know, 80, 90, yards away from where i'm sitting and a you know when coyotes are coming to the call they kind of have tunnel vision per se right and you know i may be sticking out like the most obvious thing ever on the side of this hill but if the call is 80 yards over there and i'm not moving you'd be surprised that coyotes will not even look at you and they'll come right in whereas opposed to if i just set the call 20 yards in front of me they get to 150 yards and they're looking right at the call. And then I'm sitting right behind it 20 yards. They're probably going to pick me out and they're going to check up. And now I just gave myself a, a longer shot instead of getting them in a little bit closer. So don't be afraid. You know, that's all part of, of maximizing your stand um, and, you know, using that e-call and just getting coyotes in closer. You know, the closer you get in coyotes, your kill percentages go up. It's just a fact. So, uh, think about that the next time you're out there. If you don't have the perfect cover, the the perfect hiding spot per se, uh, you know, just use that e-call, get it out of the way. And you can also use that too to funnel coyotes into certain areas. Maybe you don't have great visibility everywhere in that 180 out in front of you. There's certain pockets or openings or things like that. You know, I can use that e-call too to kind of mold, mold the stand to where coyotes will show up knowing that they're either going to come right to the call or maybe downwind a little bit and then get those coyotes into areas where, you know, I can get them killed. Now, the cool part about technology, I've already talked about it a little bit, is, is using those e-callers with the remotes. You know, the cool part about that too is, you know, walking that e-call out, as soon as I set that e-call down and turn around and look back, I'm giving myself a coyote's 
perspective of what the stand looks like. I can say, well, man, we are sticking out. You know, if I'm hunting with a buddy, I can say, hey, dude, you're too sitting too high on the hill. You're skylined. You need to come down. Um, you know, I can I can fix some issues instantaneously as soon as I set the call down and turn around, which is a huge benefit. Um, don't be afraid. I think a lot of guys are afraid to walk the call out there because they're afraid that the coyotes are going to see them um, and run off. The way I look at it, if they didn't see me walk from the truck into where I'm standing right now, they're probably not going to see me walk another 30, 40, 50, 60 yards out there to set the call, right? The advantages way outweigh the disadvantages um, when it comes to that. So don't be afraid that the coyotes are going to see you. If they've seen you, they've seen you already, and they're already gone. Um, walking that extra you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 yards out to put the call is not going to you know, cause you issues. You know, the, advent, the advantages of doing that are just you know, way more. So, um, so yeah, use that technology. And that's a great thing about, you know, lucky duck predator calls when I was working with them and Rick, you know, that was what I told him. I said, you know, I want a remote that it does not matter if there's grass brush, anything in between, you know, I want, you know, I want to be able to use this thing out as far as I want to put it, you know, and I think these remotes are good out to three, four, 500 yards, which you probably ever would never put it that far out. But, um, but if it's that good from that distance, you know that it's going to be spotless from, you know, 60, 80, 90 yards, however far you're using it. Now, so to kind of run through the process, you know, we, we've, we started out talking about coyotes. We, we talked about land access, general areas where we're going to hunt, narrowing it down to your specific stands, you know, getting into those stands. How am I setting up to make sure that, you know, we did everything right up to this point. I want to be set up right to give myself the most, the highest percentage shot possible so that we can kill the the highest percentage of coyotes possible that we call in. And a lot of, a lot of that has to do with how you set up, um, you know, but some of that has to do with your sounds, right? Like how are we picking sounds when we sit down on stand? You know, how am I running through sounds? You know, really when I look at sounds, I, I'm pretty, pretty simple. Uh, you know, Rick gets, Rick gets upset when I tell him this, but I, I honestly probably have only 30 sounds on my lucky duck call. You know, they come with a ton. And I talk to a lot of guys that want every sound possible. And, and that may be, you know, your, your style of hunting and that's fine. But for me, I like it simplified. You know, I went through and, and updated, you know, the great thing about the lucky duck calls, I can change folders real quick. So I have four folders on my entire call and I have those sounds in those four folders you know, to me, it's more important to be able to get to sounds quickly instead of going through folder, folder, trying to find exactly what I want. Um, you know, I use, like I said, uh, I use probably, to be honest with you, I use probably the, the same six or eight sounds, 80, 85% of the stands I make throughout the entire season, I probably only use six or eight sounds. You know, then sometimes there's stands, I'll go deeper and things like that. Um, but you know, so I have a folder called favorites, uh, and you know, those six, eight, 10 sounds that I use all the time are right in there. I don't care whether they're prey distress sounds, pup distress fights, whatever, how's they're all in that folder. So I can find them all real quick. Then I have a second folder called hung up. And this is a folder with any time that a coyote checks up, you know, and they're not, they just done with that sound. I start rolling through different sounds, you know, 20, 10, 20 seconds at a pop. No, they don't like it. Switch to the next sound. And every now and then, you know, after four, five, six, eight sounds, you'll have a coyote that'll just break and come and And I make a mental note of that. And that sound then gets put in my folder called hung up. So anytime I have a coyote that checks up, I go to my hung up folder. And then, you know, that might have 10 or 15 different sounds that have broke coyotes free in the past. And then I have a folder with just some howls in it that I used to locate coyotes with. And then I have a raccoon folder. So that makes it pretty easy um, when I'm doing that. But when it comes to buying an e-call, You'll have all kinds of sound, right? hundred different sounds. How do you break those into categories? I like to break them into three categories. You have all your prey distress sounds. Those are your, all your rabbits, your, your cottontails, your jackrabbits, your baby jacks, your baby cottontails, um, all your bird sounds, lucky pecker, um, you know, pheasant distress, you name it. Um, any, any big game distresses, fawn distress, deer distress, um, anything in there, those are all considered prey distress sounds. In my personal opinion, a prey distress sound is a prey distress sound. You know, it's probably personal preference more than anything. I'm not big on, oh, the coyotes were coming into this exact specific rabbit sound today. Nah, 
that's probably just coincidence, right? Like if you'd have played a different rabbit sound, I'm sure some of those coyotes would have came running into that too. So that's just my personal idea and theory on this. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't put a whole lot of thought into that. Now your second category of sounds are all your coyote based sounds, right? Your cut. Ki- and I'm going to back up a little bit, not coyote based sounds, your coyote vocals. Okay. Those are in, in, to be specific, coyote vocals are a, for me anyway, are a howl of some kind, whether it's one coyote howling, multiple coyotes howling, a serenade, a pair howl, you know, then they're named different things, right? You got interrogation howls, you got challenge howls. I, <laughs> I'm i not a coyote howling expert, you know. To me, I've only ever used howls just to pretty much locate coyotes. I really don't ever use howls as a means to call in coyotes, if that makes sense. Um, but that's, that's this whole separate category of sounds. Then the third category is all, all your other coyote based sounds, right? Those are your, your pup distresses, your coyote fights, your breeding sounds. Obviously those are different than howls, right? Those are the, those are the squeals and the, the yelps and the kai eyes and little pup squeaks and things like that. Those that's, that's your third category of sounds. So ideally on your call, to have the best variety, you'd want a third prey distress sounds, a third coyote vocalizations, and a third of those other coyote-based sounds. Now, with it, within each one of those sound categories, you have kind of aggression level, right? You have real less aggressive sounds and more aggressive sounds. Like prey distress, you have less aggressive, like a little vole squeaks, rodent squeaks, mouse squeaks, you know, some of the baby rabbits. And then you have more aggressive would be some of the real deep, loud rabbit sounds like TNT, cottontail, some of the jackrabbits. You know, then obviously in the vocalizations, you have the same thing. You have less aggressive, more aggressive, you know, lone pup howls, female lone howls, you know, less aggressive. Then all of a sudden you get into some of the serenades and the pair howls, some of the deep male challenge howls. Those are more aggressive. And then in in the third category, the coyote sounds, you know, you have some of your squeaky little, you know, pup, you know, two week old puppy, you know, squeals and and squeaks. Um, You have some of the, the breeding sounds like the female whimpers and things like that, you know, pretty less aggressive but then you have you know on the aggressive side you have some knockdown drag out fights like fight club and some of those other crazy ones kryptonite schoolyard brawl you know that are more aggressive so keep that in mind there's this aggression scale within each one of those categories now when it comes to to you know using these categories on stand i'm i'm big on jumping from category to category um you know let's take it one step further and look at the four triggers or reasons why a coyote comes to the call. You know, first and foremost, you have hunger. Um, that's usually a pretty obvious one. Um, you have a territorial response, um, which is pretty self-explanatory. Um, you have a curiosity response. I think curiosity kills a lot of coyotes, just not cats. Um, and then that last, you know, trigger is what I call kind of a social or a parental response. Um, and that's where, you know, a lot of the, I think the pup distresses and some of those coyote based sounds come into play. So keep that in mind when I get on stand, really, no matter what time of year it is, I'm trying to play a variety of sounds from all three categories that will hit all four of those triggers. Now, a rabbit sound, you know, obviously triggers a hunger response. It's going to trigger a curiosity response. It potentially could trigger a territorial response too, right? Like I've seen coyotes racing each other the call. Um, because I think maybe they're not hungry. Coyotes are just greedy. They're like, you know what? I want to be the first one to that rabbit. And this is my territory. And I know there's other coyotes here. I got to beat them there. So I think you could have a a territorial response. If I'm doing coyote vocalizations, obviously that's probably not going to trigger a hunger response. You know, we're looking at the the territorial response, potentially curiosity response. And and it may even trigger, you know, that social parental response, just, you know, from a vocalization standpoint. And then, you know, when you start playing the coyote based sounds, probably not going to, trigger a hunger response um potentially could trigger a, a territorial response or a curiosity response but really what we're looking at when we're playing those coyote based sounds like the pup distresses and coyote fights is triggering that social response um you know parental response on that fourth trigger so that's the goal when i sit down on stand is to play a variety of sounds and and i a lot of times like i like i said earlier i skip the whole coyote vocals category altogether because by playing a prey distress sound and a coyote based sound like a pup distress or coyote fight i can i can hit all four triggers just from those two categories now when i start off on the stand a lot of times i like to start off less aggressive you know if i'm going to play a prey distress sound first i'm going to i'm going to start off potentially less aggressive um and obviously a prey distress sound is just less aggressive than a 
pup distress sound in most cases. So, um, so when I leave a stand, I want to say, okay, I started off less aggressive and I've played, you know, now I've, I've appealed to potentially every coyote out there, the little wussy sissy coyotes that are going to be less aggressive to the dominant, you know, older aggressive coyotes. I've, I've played sounds from all three, you know, two of the three categories and I've, I've hit on all four triggers and therefore it just increases your chances that you're going to get a coyote to come in. So don't be afraid to mix up those sounds, you know, you know, in each one of those sounds, like I've talked about before, you know, I'm not running a sound, you know, more than, you know, five minutes tops, anywhere from three to five minutes based off my math equations that I've talked about before. Um, you know, and then, you know, I roll through those sounds and, and go from sound to sound. Some people lay out a scenario in their head. I don't do that. I just play what I want. And, and then after playing a series of, of three or four or five sounds, um, you know, then I'm out of there. So that's really, really how it goes. And then, you know, the process starts over and, uh, you know, looking back at that coyote life cycle too, you know, I'll look at those sound categories and triggers and potentially mold a different, um, you know, sound sequence board, essentially idea when it comes to that time of year. So like I said, we, I could spend a lot, a lot of time just talking about a lot of these categories, but hopefully this is just a little bit of a refresher stuff. I've talked about before. I went a little bit deeper into some of these things than, um, you know, maybe, uh, you'd have heard before, but hopefully that, uh, you know, is a little refresher that says, Hey, I'm pumped up now. I'm going to remember to try maybe try this, do it this way. Maybe you take your own way and you mold it into that a little bit and, uh, and you can get out there and, and start killing coyotes. But that's about all I have, um, for this podcast. So I want to thank all you guys for listening, making this the uh, number one predator hunting podcast out there. Um, you know, those five-star reviews on Spotify go a long ways. If you guys are listening to this in your try, if you're heading out on coyote hunts and you're listening to this podcast on your way out, hit me up an Instagram story, tag me in it. I'll share it on my page. Cause I love that man. Everybody getting pumped up, listening to coyote hunting stories and, and things on this podcast before you're heading out hunting. Um, because hopefully you're excited, man. I'm pumped up. It's going to be a great season. Uh, I got my first coyote school of the year that starts tomorrow. Um, so I'll be back on here soon with more stories. Um, you know, if you guys want to follow me on Instagram, I'll be doing a lot of, a lot of stories and things like that throughout the next, you know, four months when I'm out hunting, um, and, and things like that. But that's just at Jeff Nimnick, um, on Instagram. But, uh, you know, also if you're looking for any more information, you know, the, the new, the new episodes of the last stand are now out on, um, the lucky duck YouTube channel. So going to be a fun one. You know, these first three episodes we actually filmed last February, kind of late season breeding season kind of stuff in the Sandhills of Nebraska. And then, uh, you know, this Nevada trip I just got back from will be uh, those November episodes. So excited for all that. But uh, once again, really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, can't thank you enough there. Need to thank the sponsors as always. Hopefully you guys, you know, they, hey, these guys, these guys are supporting coyote hunting, which is not always, you know, a, a given with a lot of these companies. So got to thank, thank all of them, which Sig Sauer Optics, Swagger Bipods, Hornady, Lucky Duck Predator Calls, Silencer Central, Cryptech, Juniper Mountain Coffee, and Onyx Hunt. And of course, a big thanks goes out to the Eastman guys for bringing this all to you guys. Um, you know, if you're into the big game seasons, you're probably out there right now, maybe. Um, maybe just buying your time before you go kill coyotes. But uh, if you're into all that, if you want to check out Tag Hub and uh, some of their magazines and things like that, you can go over to their website, which is eastmans.com, and check out all they have to offer. But uh, once again, really appreciate you guys listening, and we'll catch you next time right here on the Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast.